Before we jump in, uh, I want to talk about uh, some housekeeping things. We started the year on January 1 uh, together as a congregation reading a book called Reset. I hope you're reading it. It has been good for me. Like It's been a, a reset and, a, and kind of reinvigorated my prayer life. I want us to keep going at least for, for some time beyond that. And so what I'd like for us to do is starting on the 21st, which is this week, I want to invite you to just join us. And again, we're, we're not a special program right now, anything like that. I would invite you to read with us, all of us together as a congregation, the book Purpose Driven Life. Um, and again, Purpose Driven Life is not the Bible. It was written by Rick Warren out in California, but it's a really good tool to help kind of just set some guardrails on our faith to remind us what it looks like to begin. And so that's going to kind of inform us. This year, really, as we kind of launch into our, our new series today, um, this Uncommon series, it really is a, a vision for us as a church. It's a vision for us as a congregation. And that is a vision for us individually. Uh, and so this discipleship piece really is, is it, right? One of our major value statements that we say all the time is you say, we're not making a product. We are the product, which means all of this is great, but what matters and what it comes down to the most is what we're becoming in Jesus. And so I would invite you to buy that. Read with it. If you've already got it, if you bought it 10 years ago when it was huge in the church, you don't have to buy another one. That's fine. But if you don't, go and read it with us. So we move into our confession now. And our confession is, is the way that we say the gospel. And the gospel is the good news about what Jesus is like. And it's unusual in our world, right? It's unusual to, to say this and to have this be our, be our idea, right? Because typically, right, can you imagine if your kids or your grandkids went to school and then friends and somebody asked them, like, do your parents love you? They say, yes, my parents do love me. One, to have that conviction would be amazing, right? To know that your kids have that conviction. And say, well, why do your parents? What if your kid said, my parents love me even that when I'm unlovable, I don't. I don't doubt that, that my parents, my parents don't just love me despite my failures, but they love me because I know that I am, in a great sense, broken and unlovable. This is our good news. We believe that God loves us, not because we're shiny, not because we're polished and clean and good, but because when we go to God and say, God, we are so broken, he says, I know, and I love you, and love that kind of love is the context that leads us into life. So we begin every week with our confession as a church. And our confession is, we're badly broken. Grace and peace to you. Do you realize if we believe that that is true, do you realize what that does to us in society? It makes us absolutely conspicuous. Because everywhere else in the world and everywhere else in society, he says, you are loved, right? And we don't, one, we've misunderstood love because we assume love is some touchy-feely, emotional thing, but right? But we believe that love is fierce, and it is gritty, and it is powerful, and it is strong. We say we are loved actively because we're broken, right? First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's conspicuous. And what I want to say is, that's the point. God in his infinite wisdom since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation, God created this story to be conspicuous, to make us look unusual in the world. And you just go, well, I, don't, I don't know, I don't want that. Well, he sets up a metaphor. Jesus 
He's speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and it's the very beginning of his ministry, and there's all these followers, right? And so the picture was kind of like this, right? People are gathered around, and they're wanting to, to hear what he says, and he uses this metaphor, he tells them, right? And so I want you to think about the implications of the metaphor. He says, you, disciples, followers, he's not talking about the Pharisees out there, whatever he says, you, the followers, disciples, you are the light of the world, And he says, a city on a hill, a city built on a hill can't be hidden. Light is a contrast word. When we talk about light, we understand light in the contrast of darkness. You can go out in your backyard at night and you can turn on the porch light and you can walk to the very edge of that light, right? And you look back and go, over here I can see and over here I can't see. And there's a contrast. And what he says, Jesus is saying, look, as you follow me, as you walk in this in this way, as you are my disciples and my people, and really the Sermon on the Mount is a great kind of illustrative tool for that. As you walk this out, as you live in my life with my spirit, you will become uncommon. There will be a contrast between you and all the other people, all the other things around. And this is important for us to know because My understanding, well, a couple things. One, if you're watching at home, welcome. We're glad that you're here. I want you to know, whether you're in this room or whether you're watching us online or whether you're watching us from the future at some other time and some other point, I don't assume that you're a follower of Jesus. I assume that you're here. That's that's it. And so what I want to do is I want to paint the best, clearest picture possible of what it looks like and what it means to follow Jesus, to be to be a part of this. And the one thing that I can't escape, regardless of what I see or around whatever, when I look in the scripture and I see the people that Jesus talked to and impacted, what I see and what I realize is following Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus, Jesus is going to lead us into an uncommon life. We will, as we follow Jesus, we will look different. Now, I want to acknowledge that some of you have a fear about that because in the churches that I grew up in, that meant weird, right? To follow Jesus, it was like, oh my, like we have to say and do these things, right? And I have to dress this way and I have to listen to this terrible, this music and other, right? And I just want to say, I want to maybe disavow you of that, right? Weird is just weird, There's no inherent value in weirdness. It's just weird. And some of you are like, so Jesus just wants us to be weird? No, uncommon. And when we're uncommon, what that means is that people will notice. It will look different than it normally does. That's the idea of a city on a hill, right? You're looking at the skyline. I love the mountains. We just got back to the mountains. I'm like, oh, mountain, oh, beautiful mountains, mountains. Oh, beautiful mountains, mountains, city. And you can see it. It looks different. It's unusual. That's the kind of life that following Jesus leads us to. But it's not weird for weirdness sake. So you're like, what does that mean? Do I have to go buy new shirts? Right? Do I have to listen to the K-Love or Air, Lo- Air One all the time? Right? Well, the scripture tells us what it looks like. Romans 8. Right? Paul writes this letter and he says, he says, listen, God's causing all things to work together for good for you. He's going to, whatever comes in your life. And I want you to say, like, we have a response to that. Like, that means something. But right after that, he tells us kind of his perfect. Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. And we know who his son is, Jesus, right? That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. When I see the word conformed, I always think of Plato, and I hate Plato because it 
balls up, right? And it gets little stuff all over my house and it's terrible. But the idea behind Play-Doh is I can squeeze it and make it look like I want, right? Like I can take the press, like that little press, and I can make it. I'm like, oh, look, it's a shell, right? Whatever. That's that's what Play-Doh does, right? To follow Jesus, his plan, as he knew us and his plans, was that we would look like Jesus. You want to know what uncommon looks like? Uncommon looks like Jesus. If we follow him, we will look more and more like him. That means individually, people that were drawn to Jesus will increasingly be drawn to us. People that were repelled by Jesus will be increasingly repelled by us. Whatever is, whatever you want to say about Jesus, people took notice of Jesus. We're still talking about him 2,000 years later, right? So Jesus was a unique cat. He was a different individual. And as we follow him, we will increasingly look like that. That's what our life will look like, and it will be uncommon. But again, if we're going to understand what the uncommon Christian looks like, the uncommon Christian life looks like, because here's the deal. We talked about purpose-driven life, about following. As you follow Jesus, your life should change, and you've got to know what will it look like so we can know, am I following Jesus or am I following something else? So if we're going to understand this uncommon life and what it actually and really looks like, it's going to look like Jesus. So we have to understand what God is like. So here's for the next six weeks. We're going to talk about our uncommon God, uncommon God, our uncommon Savior, our uncommon spirit. And from there, we're going to get this picture as big as we can about what God looks like. And then we're going to make some applications about what that means and what that looks like for us. We're going to build a theology, and then we're going to talk about how we walk it out and how we live it out. So we're going to understand what God is like. That's the question. What is he like? Because if we're going to look like him, we need to know, right? So what I want to do is I just want to kind of show you a little bit, one example and one evidence of what God is like. So the story begins in the garden, right? In the Garden of Eden, and God creates mankind, and things. the garden is a place. There are trees there. It gives us boundaries, right? There are four rivers, and the rivers flow out, and we know where there's are, and there's there. There's a tree. There are all these markers that tell us that it was a place. But then there's sin, and this sin causes a sinner where you leave the garden. We walk away from God's presence, and we go out into the world. And from there, right, things kind of go from bad to worse. But God's not done with us yet. God's not done. So what he does is he seeks out a guy named Abram, and he tells Abram, he says, hey, Abram, I want you to leave the land of your fathers, and I want you to go to a place I'm going to show you. I want you to, to head out, and as you go, I'm going to show you there. And a little while later, God, because God wanted to have, you know, God created us to walk in the garden with him, to be with him. So a little later, he comes back to Abram, and he goes, Abram, hey, man, I just want to remind you, man, I I'm going to bless you like you're like crazy, bro. Like, I'm going to give you, you're going to be a nation. And Abram's 90 years old. He's like, I don't even have a kid. How am a nation? Like, I'm going to have grandkids. I'm going to have so many, so many heirs that I can't count. And God says, yeah, I'm going to take that. But he adds on to it, right? And Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, God also said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to for the purpose of to give you this land to take possession of it. So he says, Abram, I've got a plan for you to give you land. There's going to be land, right? So one of the things that we can see that God cares about is land. God cares about giving his people a place. And so he says, Abram, I'm going to do it. You don't have kids. I'm going to do it. You left your land. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it to you. So Abram walks and he follows God and he has Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and they become a nation like a bunch of them. They go into Egypt and they become slaves for 400 years. And the people in slavery are like, God, did you forget? We don't have 
anything. So God then again, because he doesn't forget, he goes to a guy named Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to lead my people out of slavery. And in Exodus 6, 8, he says this, and I will bring you and all the people to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it, the land, to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Do you see what God is doing? God's got a place in mind. God's got boundaries and borders. So now we go to Deuteronomy. So they lead out, they come, and there's plagues. And now they're in the wilderness. And for 40 years, they're in the wilderness And the people are like, you're so slow, God. And he's like, yes, but I'm teaching you something and I'm doing something. So finally, Moses, they're on the edge of the promised land. And so the book of Deuteronomy is like Moses standing at the edge of the mountain and it's like his farewell address. And boy, is it long, but there's good stuff in there, right? And so in Deuteronomy 1.8, This is Moses, and he's reminding the people about all that God has taught them in the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy 1.8, see, God says, God says to the people of Israel, see, I have given you what? This land. See, I've given you this land. Go in and take possession. That's a really important idea. We're going to come back to it. Are you ready? Take possession. I've given you this. Go take possession of it of the land the Lord the swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. So God says, I'm giving you this land. You're right on the edge. Moses had disobeyed pretty bad, and part of his thing was he wasn't going to get to go into the promised land. So Moses dies, and God calls this, it was a young man named Joshua, who was Moses' protege. And, and when Moses died, Joshua takes over leadership of the people of Israel. And so in Joshua 1.6, God, now that Joshua's the head, God, Joshua's where, where Moses was, says, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit what? The land, the land that I swore to you and I swore to their ancestors. Now get down to verse 11, right? It's the day before. Go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. What we can see about God is that God owns all of the stuff and he is so gracious to give to his people a portion of this now. You might be here thinking, hey, as a church, aren't we about to buy land? Yes. So you're like, this is about that? No, this has nothing to do with that. We got to be real careful that we don't use the scripture to say what we want it to say. Now, we're buying land, and we would love for you to be a part of that process. If you can join that, that would be awesome. That would be wonderful. But this is not about that. What we do see, though, is God giving and promising his people land. Uh, a promised land, a home, square footage and acreage in an actual place was part of God's promise to the people of Israel. It was their birthright. It was their inheritance. God promised to them and swore to them that he would. And now here they are. That's why what I'm about to read next is really weird. Because, well, let's see. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now, Joshua was near Jericho. Jericho was the town on the other side of the river. They were going to cross over the Jordan River, and they were going to go take Jericho, and they were going to inhabit it. 
The promise. God had told them they were about to get what God had always promised for them. So when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up and asked him, are you for us or for our enemies? Now I want you to pause right there and go, what's the answer to that? You know the answer to that. They were doing what God had told them to do. God had been promising this forever. They were about to go inhabit the promised land. They were going to swarm the land of Canaan. There were a million of them. God had told them just how it was going to be. The answer is, we're for you because you are on a righteous journey and escapade. He's like, I'm just here, Joshua, to rally the troops, right? Are you here for, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. Let that hang over your head for just a second. We mean neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for the servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So we have to ask, who's this man with the sword? Well, all the commentaries I read is it's this God. This is a pre-incarnate Jesus, and here's how we know why, right? Could it be an angel? Could, but it's not, because everywhere in Scripture that we see someone bowing down and worshiping an angel, the angel says, no, 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 don't do that. There is only one person in Scripture who is worthy of worship, and that is God. So the fact that Joshua not only worships and this man receives worship, but says to Joshua the same words that he said to Moses at the burning bush, take off your sandals, this is holy ground, tells us that this is God. Joshua's question, God, who are you for, brings us a startling response. I'm not for you. That word for, as we go through and we see God had a plan and a purpose for his people, I don't think it means that God wasn't for, like his heart wasn't inclined towards the Israelites. What I think it means is, I'm not on your side. And by that, I mean, I'm not against all of them. I am not on your side to the exclusion of them on their side. And this makes us uncomfortable. So here's what I want to ask today. I want to say, it's like, as I'm writing this, I'm going, this is so hard. I don't know how I can do this. I don't get this. Are we willing to evaluate our own preconceptions about what God is like, even if it is really, really uncomfortable, and it goes against everything that we thought we had seen and heard and known before? Because again, God is making us like Jesus, uncommon, different. Because what we see in this is God says, I'm not for you, Joshua. I'm not on your side, Joshua. I'm not on the side of the Jerichoans. I am for me. And we know he says this because he tells him to worship. Worship is the response. Worship, God is on his side for his own glory, not Israel's glory. God doesn't work for Israel. He doesn't work for us. He works for himself. He is God. 
See, it's a completely common idea for people to believe that God is for them. That's the whole, every other belief system kind of in the world. If you look at ancient Greece, right, and their whole pantheon of gods, they would make these sacrifices to try to woo the gods to their side. If you could just be for us, and, if, and then it's a, we got to wait and find out. If it rains, God is on our side. If it doesn't rain, God is on someone else's side. If we win the battle, God is on our side. If they win the battle, God is on their side. Or we've got to spin it somehow to say, well, God really is on our side, but it's not. See, this is the thing. If God is on our side, it changes. If we begin with that idea, the way that we see the entire universe has to change. It's a completely common, ordinary thing to to co-opt God and to invoke him to our side. But what this passage in Joshua tells us is that God does not take sides. And that may be hard to hear right now. Because if God doesn't take sides, then the way that we look at a lot of the world may have to change. And I just want you to know, this idea has always been uncommon. It has never been normal to think that. As we talk about uncommon, you may be stretched. Your concept of who God is and what he does may be challenged and may be stretched. And you may say, how could that be? How could we say, how, if God's not on Israel's side, who, how, whose side is he on? This is what I want us to unpack. This is what I want us to come to. And again, we got to bathe this in scripture because this isn't just what I feel, right? If it's just what I feel, then you take that and five bucks and you get a cup of coffee somewhere. But if the scripture tells us, then this is truth, and this is reality, and we order and build our lives around it. So let me clarify what that means when I say that God is not on our side. First thing that is true is God has a plan, and he is working out his plan in us and for us. I did not say, to say that God is not on our side does not mean that God is against us. I want you to know very much that I believe that God is for you, that God wants what is good for you. I believe, but what God wants as good for you is his plan. He knows his plan. So here's why we can say this about Jericho, right? So we're going to go, if Joshua knew God is for me, we get the promised land, it's all ours, we've got an enemy in front of us, what do you do? You topple the walls, you storm the city, and you kill everybody. That's the easiest way, right? That's Joshua's plan. If it's up to Joshua, Joshua wants the land. But let me show you what God is up to. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Before all of this happened, before they go back, Joshua's going to send some spies in. Listen, Joshua 2, 1. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. And when they get inside to Rahab's house, she goes, I know you. They're like, they've got their fake mustache right on, their disguise, right? They're like, what do you mean? She says, I know who you are. She says, you're those people. Your God is with you. And she said, I know that your God has given this city. I want you to spare my life because I see what your God is and I believe in your God. So the spies go, okay. They say, tie a red scarf, you know, a yellow, red piece of string around your window. And, and we, when we sack the city, we'll leave, your, we'll leave your house. And they did it. Rahab escaped. Now I want you to flip to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. 
Rahab's a Gentile. Rahab was a Canaanite. Rahab was a prostitute. There are no more unclean things you can say about a person that are not true of Rahab. If it was true about unclean, if there was something that exempted a person from the presence of God, it was true about Rahab. And God chose her in the lineage of Jesus. See, Josh was thinking about the land. God was thinking about Jesus. Do you see? God is for himself because he knows if he's for himself, then he's for us. That changes the way that we see things. We read Jeremiah 29, 11, and this is a verse that has brought so much comfort to so many people, right? We pray it over our graduates. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And we read that and we go, oh, yes, right? But what we read is God is going to prosper me. That means I will have more money and things and stuff and influence than I do now. You remember several years ago, some of you, right, when the prayer of Jabez came out and everybody was like, I'm going to pray this and my business is going to be huge. Huge, And you just hope that the person you're in your direct competition with isn't praying the prayer of Jabez too, because then what happens? Then we're going to get in trouble, right? You get into all kinds of weirdness. The boxer, I just want to thank the Lord Jesus for helping me bludgeon my enemy, right? Well, what if they're both praying, right? This passage out of Jeremiah 29, if you read the whole passage of scripture, is to his people that are in exile. He said, people, my people, Israelites, remember the ones who struggle to remember that God's not on their side? You're going into exile. I'm going to subject you to the Babylonians. And he said, while you're there, I'm going to prosper you. And what that means is I'm going to make you my people again. I'm going to teach you how to be a people of God. See, when we believe that God is on our side, when we believe that God is is in our corner, that God has got our flag, our name on his T-shirt, our plan is to win, always to win. Our plan is to have more, more money, more power, more influence, more fame, more stuff, bigger and more. God's plan is for faith and for hope. And for you to be prepared for a life that will never end. This world is going to end. And so God does not have the least bit of qualm about taking these things that will end from us so that he can give us something that will never end. So when we get locked down, if our hope is here, we begin to rail. God is on our God would never ask us to do this. That's a Funny sentiment to Christians imprisoned in China or in Soviet Russia. God would never take away our freedoms. That's a funny sentiment to the apostle Paul who introduced himself as a slave to Christ. See, if God is for us, that means that we are right regardless. That means that when we something, see something that goes against that narrative, now we have to spin it. Now we have to not make it not say that, rather than just going, oh, no, that's wrong. And it's not on my side. My side is God's side. And that's wrong. The, that is right. That is good. Look at the love and the joy and the peace. And the, look at all of that. That is just wrong. It's just, it's just wrong. Not, oh, God is for us so that we are, God is on our side so we are right. See, God has a plan for you, but it is for you to live eternally, not to have your best life now, to have your best life forever. That's his plan, and he'll give it to you 
if you will live in him, if you will worship as Joshua did. And you say, well, what about Jericho? Jericho got on the short end of that stick, right? Boy, just sacked him, right? Does God hate the Jerichoans? No. Jericho experienced something that every other nation in the history of the world either has or will experience. Nations don't live forever. The kingdom of God is not a geopolitical thing. Jericho was not going to last forever. What's remarkable isn't that God destroyed Jericho. What's remarkable is that the God of the Israelites saved Rahab. See, that's the problem. When we believe that God is for us, we scorched earth, we burn, and everybody is either for us or against us. You are either righteously with us or you are evil and against us, and you are bad. And if you are against us, then you are against God. That's not how God is. God is sovereign, and he is ultimate, and God is for himself. The question is, will we be for God, not will God be for us? See, God is happy to include us in his plan. He included like a million Israelites, right? Take the land and and do all that. But that's different than saying that God is on our side, that God fights the same battles that we do. That's a different thing than saying that God chooses us and we are right. So what side is God on? Aside from him, what does that mean? God is on the side of righteousness. And this is where it's easy for us to go, yeah, see, I knew it. God is, that's why God is on my side, because we are on the side of righteousness. Here's the thing. Some people say righteousness means abortion. We are on the righteous side because we are pro-life. Some people say righteousness means I am for the immigrant, and I am for pro-immigration, and God is for us, and I can see it. And both sides say, yeah, but, and yeah, but, and you know what? We square off, and we both invoke God on our side. Because here's the thing. We think that righteousness runs kind of this circles through this line of, of, of like issues and like, and like politicals. And we're in a political season, and we look at that, and we got both sides invoking God on their side and saying, yeah, but God is on my side because I believe this. See, here's the thing. Righteousness doesn't run through these political issues. Righteousness runs through the heart of you and me. There is no righteous cause in humanity. There is a righteous God, and there are badly broken people. See, that's the rub about admitting every week that we're badly broken. When that brokenness manifests itself, we have an opportunity to own it, rather than just going, no, it couldn't be. How could it be me? See, right and wrong is in here. Isaiah 6, Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, all our righteous works are like filthy rags. The Hebrew word for filthy rags is like a diaper. The very best righteousness that you muster up is like poop on a towel. That's why that's a good image. Huh? You saw that, right? That's what we bring. To- God, I stood for the right issue and I voted for the right guy. Here is my righteousness. God's like, dude, dude. You yell at your kids, you hated people, you're obnoxious, and you drove too fast. Oh! In case you think that's just Old Testament, what about the New Testament? Paul just said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all. That's you and that's me. And that's everybody who has ever lived saved one, Jesus. God is not on our side. And our positions in the world, our position against the homeowners association, it is not a righteous cause. Just cut the grass. 
Can I get in your business a little bit more? You're like, nope, that's enough, plenty. (laughs) I say this with gentleness. Wear a mask. If you can, if if you're helped. Because we live in a culture where they're about to say, hey, Pastor, you just go, but I have the freedom and I write. You do, good for you. Have it. There's nothing conspicuous about lining up on political sides. Nothing uncommon about that. But if we just go, man, maybe it helps somebody. Even if you just go, man, the science is dubious. I know, every science, it's always dubious until it's clear. And then there's a new scientific discovery that makes the whole thing dubious again. What if we just say it's not that big of a freaking deal? Because as soon as I say this world is mine to exert my will in, I set myself up against God. And listen, I'm a professional Christian. But when I have my way, that's not always Jesus' way. Because I am sinful. And my heart is sinful in ways that I don't even understand. Righteousness is not an issue. God sees individuals as sinful. But God sees individuals as capable of being loved and receiving grace. See, when we say that God does not take sides, here's what that doesn't mean. Please hear me very clearly. What I am not saying is that there is no such thing as right and wrong. I'm saying that right and wrong is in us. I can do the right thing with the wrong motive and be wrong. I can do the right thing, I believe, with the right motive, and God looks at it and sees it and goes, we got this. What God not taking sides means that God always, always leaves room for grace and for reconciliation. God always leaves room for the relationship. God never pronounces it dead because there's always hope that he can do something new and good. God on the side of righteousness means that he's for himself, and he wants you to be on his side too. That's why fierce love is the law of the kingdom, right? Because God is the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and the Spirit. And there's this like dance and they're always submitting themselves to each other, right? And they're always humbling themselves before each other. So God is for himself. And love then is that relationship, right? That's why if you want to be righteousness, it's not about that you vote the right way. It's not about that you have all of the rights that you think that Thomas Jefferson said that, that you had. It's not about that. If you want to be righteous, we love As Jesus loved, that means our enemy. We love our enemy. That's how we be on Jesus' side. What did God, God, the man with the sword, what did he tell Joshua to do? He didn't say, hey, I'm going to need you to run a flank and then a pincher movement and go over like that. He said, worship. Take off your shoes and worship and humble yourself. A lot of things that he could have said. If we're going to be on God's side, on his side, we worship, not fight. We worship, not fight. And you go, but God told them to take the promised land. He sent them in. They were an army, and they set it up, and they stormed the capital, and they overthrew the Canaan. Here's what I would say. How did that work? Do we still have a continuing, perfect, geopolitically, geopolitical, perfectly political kingdom in the Middle East under the rule of a nonstop line of kings? No. What I would submit is that whole idea of conquest was in the Israelites' heart. And God was like, let's see how that goes. But Jesus came into that space, and when a very conservative religious establishment condemned him, 
And the seat of Caesar, Pontius Pilate speaking with Caesar's voice, the very, in Rome, the very seat of liberal government when the conservatives and the liberals for once in history conspired against Jesus. What he didn't do is call down a thorn of angels. What he didn't do is pronounce judgment on everybody. What he didn't do was throw fireballs or whatever. What he didn't do was protest or take signs. What he did do was pick up a cross, walk up a hill, and let them kill him. And he looked at the conservatives and says, forgive them. And he looked at the liberals and said, forgive them. And he forgave all of them, and that is the kingdom which stands. And you know how I know? Because he got up. Too many times we try to explain away Jesus by quoting David. We try to use Joshua to explain Jesus. It doesn't work that way in the scripture. We follow Jesus, not David. We follow Jesus not Joshua. And what Joshua did was worship by humbling himself, by loving his enemies. He said as much. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's common. Everybody says that. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, because they're wrong, because we're righteous, because we're right on the issues. Be with us because God is on our side. He says, you heard that. Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you got to think, when Jesus said that, who persecuted him? The Romans. And by persecute, he means they killed him. They didn't inconvenience him. They killed him. And he said, love them and pray for them, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. See, we look at all these signs and say, oh, God is for us because he got this and he made this happen. And, and, and right, That's Jesus said, no. Common grace. Good things come to all people because God is good. So if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? What he's saying is that's utterly common. Do not even pagans do that, but listen, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's real important to know where that phrase comes. When he says, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's not talking about pornography. He's not talking about lust. He's not talking about who you vote for. He's not talking about where you live. He's not talking about how much tax you pay. He's not talking about which causes you fight for. When he says, be perfect, as your Father is perfect, he says it in the context of a teaching about loving your enemies. If we are going to be like him, we are going to be like that. We're a church for New Braunfels. That's what we're about. We are not on New Braunfels' side. We are for New Braunfels. And in 2021, in a world divided and seemingly burning in the pits and blah, blah, we do not say, we are for New Braunfels, right or wrong. What we mean is we say, no, we stand in a position with a towel, not a protest placard, not, not a, a petition, no, with a servant's towel and with the cross of Jesus on our back. And we go to our city and we go, no, we love you too much. That's crazy. That's sin. We don't be a part of that. Oh, do you have hungry people? Yeah, we'll feed them. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Do you know as a church what part of, and what you did during the quarantine and COVID? We raised thousands of dollars. We've given, I want to say $10,000, something like that. How many? 11? 
up more. My wife is going up more, over $10,000 just out of COVID relief to people who are short on their rent, all that. That's what it means to be for. But it doesn't mean that whatever they do is right. That we go, well, we can't say anything about that because we're for them. No, it means when we see sin and unrighteousness, we point to it, whatever side it's on, because we're not on a side. We are with him. That's what we're about in 2021. It is common to invoke God as we wage war on our enemies. Nothing unique about that in all of history. What is uncommon is to worship our God in the midst of our enemies by obeying his commands to love and serve those who are not like us. We're going to see more next week about what this looks like, but I want to give you some specific things. First thing I want to ask you, how did Joshua end this, right? Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Joshua's about to die. He's at the end. They're in the promised land. They've taken it. It's a good thing. And he talks to the people of Israel, and he says this, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that's the question. What I want to invite you today is choose. Choose who you will serve. The common gods of division and power and politics and strength and might or the God who doesn't take sides but loves and gives himself for his enemies. Choose to be uncommon. So here's what I want you to do. Will you take out your phone? I don't have my phone with me. Will you take out your phone? If you want that, if you say, today I choose, I want to choose to be uncommon, I want you to text to the number 94000. I want you to text the word uncommon. And what I'm going to do is every day this week, about 10 o'clock, I'm going to send you a prompt, a scripture verse to read, one verse, not a passage, one verse, and a thought, a thing that you can do to begin living an uncommon life. And I just want to ask you today, choose. So what does that mean? First, it means to worship. It means to put his way first. Obey him. What it means is don't fight. Stop fighting in whatever context that is. Post more dog pictures on Facebook and fewer clarifications of other people's idiocy. You're never going to outrun other people's idiocy because eventually we'll run into our own, right? More puppy pictures. That's what we need, right? More funny memes. Second, get rid of us versus them. I mean, take no quarter. I mean, when you sense us versus them in your heart and in your life, I mean, ruthlessly stamp it out. I mean, don't wound it. I mean, destroy it. I mean, if somebody makes you angry this week and you want to yell at them and show them the one finger salute, what I mean is you back up and you begin to intentionally pray God's favor and blessing on them. And you go, but they're wrong. So are you. If you do not love them and pray for them, that's what Jesus said. I didn't say that. Jesus said it. I mean, Choose, resolve, speak no evil. Speak no evil in your life. I mean, mend a fence. Find a relationship that's been damaged and that's been broken and go up and repair it and fix it and make it right and don't leave until it's fixed. Oh, but they're terrible and they're hurtful. Ah, yeah, I know. Yeah, that makes two of you. Me too. Finally, give Jesus your life. Listen, I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus in here. But I want to say that Jesus wants to make your life uncommon, and by uncommon, I mean eternal. And it's very simple. We confess, Jesus, I haven't walked your way. I've done religious things. I've done all that. But I haven't walked your way. I haven't walked the way of peace. That's called sin. You say, Jesus, I've sinned. 
And because we confess sin, he forgives. That's what being saved is. We're we're saved from a world that eats its own, that destroys, that kills on a cross everything that disagrees with. We're saved from that for a life of favor and blessing. If that's you, pray this with me. Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me and that you would come into my life and save me. I want to follow you. I want to be different. I want to lead an uncommon life. Give me your spirit to guide me and save me. And Jesus, I pray for those in here, maybe those of us who have been following you for a while. I pray that we would repent of anything other than this biblical calling to be for you, to be eternal, constant worshipers of you in the midst of enemies and wrong ideas and sin. We worship you. Use us to be different. We ask Jesus in your name and for your glory. Amen. Listen, if you pray that prayer today to follow Jesus, if you said, I, for, I, I need you to forgive me, will you text the word follower to 94000? I'm going to send you a text. It's going to be great. Um, I want to get started. That's the biggest decision that you could ever make. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance and give you peace. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.